I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and you'll need to have that in front of you to follow along. So these guys have some Bibles as they make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. And those are marked for you at 1 Thessalonians 4. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you. This week, a, a new book came out that gives much data about how much better people in America are off in just about every category. But as you analyze what's said in that book with all of its data, you see that the author is not exactly right about us being completely better well off because he doesn't spend much time on things like the decline of social trust, the breakdown of family life, the polarization of national life, the spread of tribal mentalities, the rise of narcissism, the decline of social capital, the rising alienation from institutions, the decline of citizenship and neighborliness. And it's simply impossible to tell any good news story about where we are when looking at data from those moral, social, and emotional areas. The author looked at things like how much better off people are in terms of their physical health, living longer, fewer people in poverty, and so on. But you see, friends, if we're not healthy in what matters most, then we're not truly healthy. We're not truly healthy as individuals, as a society, or as a church. Now today, as we continue our series in 1 Thessalonians that's titled, What God Looks For in a Church?, the Lord once again reminds us of what's really important to the health of a church. We may have good attendance, a nice building, programs, and resources, but God says if we do not have holiness, we're not healthy. Now, if you've not done so already, I encourage you to take out the outline that's inserted in the program that you should have received on the way in. Now, as you'll see, as you look at that outline, there's a lot there. But today we're going to look at holiness as it relates to one area of life in particular as we get to verse 3. We're going to spend enough time there that we won't get through the entire outline today, but we'll finish it next week. Let's ask God to help us as we look at his word. Father, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for your word that instructs us. Thank you for your spirit. That causes us to receive and accept what your word says. So now, Lord, we ask you to help us to be willing and open and active participants in the work that you seek to do in us through your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I say, first of all, in that outline, that Christian living is imperative. Christian living is imperative. That is, living a distinctly Christian life is not something that's optional, or it's not simply something that's only for some really serious followers of Jesus. But it's for all of us who claim to have a relationship with him. And so I say in the outline, since it's imperative, first of all, it's an obligation to God. Because verse 1 says this, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. Now, when it says, as for other matters, that's translated as the word finally in many versions. It says, finally, brothers and sisters. But as for other matters is more accurate since it's not referring to ending the letter. 
As you can see, 1 Thessalonians goes on for another couple chapters. But it's a transition from the personal comments of the first three chapters to now pastoral comments in chapters 4 and 5 that deal with doctrinal and ethical matters. That is what we're to believe and how we're to live. Now these matters, these other matters that Paul is now going to address were probably passed on to him by Timothy, who you may remember from what we've seen over the last few weeks had just arrived from Thessalonica with news about the health of the church there. And overall, the report that Timothy gave was a very good one. But they, like all churches, had not arrived. And so Paul writes to help them avoid spiritual lethargy or complacency. And one of the best ways to avoid those is to remember the goal that's mentioned in verse 1. That we're here to please God. That pleasing God is the object of our lifestyle. Now, if you're a Christian, you can please God. Now, think about that. That should amaze you if you know something about where you were before you became a Christian. At one time, when we were lost and outside of Christ, the Bible says we were God's enemies. There was nothing that we could do to please God. In fact, God's wrath abided on us, and it abides on all of those who continue to reject His Son. But the Bible says that in the work of Christ, God has made peace with those who were His enemies. And so we now have new standing before God. No longer is there hostility between us and God. Note what the Scriptures say about our past and present positions. The Bible says the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature, notice this, cannot please God. So before you came to Christ, you had no hope of pleasing God. The Bible tells us we have now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, now everything has changed. And so the same Paul who wrote Thessalonians and Romans that's quoted there could say in yet another place, we make it our goal to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So the Christian life is primarily positive, not what most people think, that it's entirely negative. And here's what I mean by that. Most people think that because there are so many commands in the Bible that we're not to do and we're to avoid, then the Bible is all about staying away from stuff, things you don't do. And if you do a good job of not doing the things you're not supposed to do, then you're a godly person. But as I pointed out in our Positive Holiness series last summer, all the negative commands of the Bible, all the things that we're told not to do, are all in order to help us achieve what it is we're striving for. All of the thou shalt nots, are all because of two positive commands. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said all of the laws hang on those two positive commands. And so, friends, what we avoid is for the purpose of what we're trying to accomplish, namely pleasing God with our lives. So it's similar to training for an athletic contest. If you're a runner... You train for the meet of the tournament that may be coming up. You want to win the prize. 
you train that way. And as you're training, because you have that goal to win the prize, there are certain things that you won't do, that you avoid, that you can't do, certain things that you won't eat. But all of those are for the purpose of the positive thing you're seeking to achieve. And so Christians should be known not primarily for what we don't do, but rather what we love. More accurately, who we love and who it is we're trying to please. And since God's pleasure is ultimately the object of our lives, it means that our obligation is not primarily to other people. Now, indeed, the Bible does lay obligations on us for the sake of other people. First Corinthians 8, 9, 10 talk about us giving up our rights for the sake of others, but these are secondary. Behind all our actions and motivations should ultimately be to live for him who loved us and who gave himself for us. It also means, since our primary obligation is to please God, that it's not primarily to please ourselves. Self-love is an ever-present temptation. Contrary to those who say we need to learn to love ourselves, (laughs) friends, our problem is we love ourselves too much. In order to avoid making our pleasure primary and instead make God's pleasure our ultimate goal, we need to examine how we go about our lives. So we need to ask, how do we make decisions in our lives? Is it based on what I like? What I want to do? What pleases me? We ought to ask ourselves always, what pleases God? What are God's goals for my life? And how can I align my life best to fulfill His purposes? What does He want? And that's to be the increasing and consistent pattern of our lives. Verse 1 again. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. The more and more in this letter and throughout most of the New Testament is not about more and more people. It's not about growing the church numerically, though that's not unimportant, but it's about growing the people that you have spiritually. And that's why our church's vision statement is that we seek to be a healthy community of faith. And church health leads to church growth both spiritually and numerically. Now, in verse 1, there's the acknowledgement that they're already living to please God, but then the strong statement. Notice the two words, I request or I ask and I urge. So it's a request and a strong encouragement to do it more and more. But Paul says, you're as in fact you're already doing. So why not just leave well enough alone? They're already doing pretty well. Well, it's because the Christian life, friends, is a journey in which we'll never arrive until heaven. Even the great apostle Paul who wrote this said, I press toward the mark. This side of heaven, we're to be growing and maturing, never satisfied with our present state, but always striving to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, a couple of observations for why it is that we stagnate in our growth. One is that many of us mistakenly think that heaven is the goal. Getting to heaven is not the goal of the Christian life. Pleasing God, Christ-likeness, is the goal. Think about it. If heaven is the goal, 
And if eternal security is true, and it is, you know what I mean by that. Once you've come to Christ, you already know you're going to heaven. Well, if heaven's the goal, then the gig is up for that, right? We already know the answer to that, so why doesn't God just take us home? And here's a second reason that many of us stagnate. One, we think that heaven's the goal, when in fact pleasing God and Christ's likeness is. But secondly, we measure godliness by our standard rather than God's. And because we have some externals down pat, we think there's not much that needs to improve for us. I've given this illustration of the Christian life as a garden in the past. When we first become a believer, there are these large stones in the garden of our lives that are obvious and they need to be removed. Things like the way we talk, habits that we had, associations. And because they're obvious, they get a good bit of attention and they're often removed fairly quickly after you come to Christ. But if you continue to cultivate the garden and you, be, you begin to notice something, that there are all these smaller stones out there and they're harder to see and there are more of them. And as you continue to plow, you continue to see more of that. And so lest any of us thinks he's arrived because we're not what we were, perhaps do this, friends, begin to think of your life from the outside in. That is, yes, indeed, we need to get rid of the obvious actions that we know are displeasing to God. But consider things like not only how you act, but what you say and to whom you say it. And more difficult, what you think and why you think it. There's a lifetime of work to be done when the garden of our lives is seen in that light. Christian living is an obligation to God to please him in gratitude for all that he's done to us. But I say in the outline as well. Christian living is a command from God. Contrary to much that is taught, Christian living is not optional, but is commanded by God. Verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. The pastoral tone of verse 1 now gives way to the direct reminder that this is something that we must do because God has commanded it. When Paul, who wrote this, invokes Christ's authority, he could do that because he was, as an apostle, commissioned by Christ to carry out his work, acting and teaching on Christ's authority. Therefore, what Paul instructs is as binding as if directly from Jesus. And since our goal is to please God, and we ought to be motivated to do this out of love for God, then why is it commanded? That is, shouldn't we just want to do it and therefore no need to be commanded? Well, the answer to that is, yeah, we should want to. But the fact is, friends, if we're honest, we still struggle with sin. And therefore, what we ought do, we often do not do. Parents, there's a lesson for this with you and your children. Your kids ought to want to obey you. And it's certainly every godly parent's desire that their children serve out of love rather than mere obligation. But you need to exercise your God-given authority to help them see the importance of the task. I've encountered, encountered many parents over the years who will force their kids, have rules for their kids to do all sorts of things. You've got chores to do, take out the garbage, get up on time to go to school, do your homework, all of that. Going to church, that's your option. Are you kidding which is more important among all of those? 
You want to teach those children how important it is. And we, of course, pray and hope that they will come to a point that they will then make those choices on their own. But I would urge you not to be more Christian than Christ as you think about the application of these rules. So we're given a general command to live to please God. The passage assumes that all believers desire this goal and they're willing to obey. And now the passage goes on to tell us practically how to do it. And the following verses give specific application, things that need to be done in order to please God. Verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So I say in your outline, Christian living is imperative and, now secondly, Christian living requires holiness. I say holiness is required because the word that's translated sanctified in verse 3 is the word from which we get holy. It means to be separate, to be set apart. It means to be different. And verse 3 tells us that, I say in the outline, holiness is God's will. It is God's will that you be made holy, that you be sanctified. Now here, friends, we learn something about God's will. Contrary to what many of us have been taught, God's will is not hidden and in need of being found. Instead, what God expects of us is in the Bible and it's in need of being obeyed. There are two aspects to God's will. What many have called God's decreed will and then his moral will. God's decreed will is whatever comes to pass that God in the counsels of his own person has determined will happen. No one but God knows it, and it's futile trying to find out until tomorrow. Then you'll know God's decreed will for today. My theology professor in seminary used to say, you want to know God's will for today? Ask me tomorrow. Speaking of God's decreed will, he was referring to God's plan. But the Bible makes known to us the other aspect of God's will, his moral will. And God's moral will has been revealed in the pages of the book that you have in front of you, the Bible. You don't need to read spiritual tea leaves. You don't need to discern signs. And all of the things that many of us have been taught mystically to look at for God's will. Holiness is God's will. And holiness, I say in the outline, requires obedience. We're given explicit instruction in verse 3 regarding God's will in living a holy life. Notice verse 3 and the colon That comes after the word sanctified. It is God's will that you be sanctified, colon, meaning here's how you do that. Here's how you're made holy. Here's how you're sanctified. Avoid sexual immorality. It's one way that you do that. We're going to see others next week. But one is avoid sexual immorality. The two words, sexual immorality, translate one Greek word, porneia. We get pornography from it. It's a broad term that describes all types of sexual immorality, adultery, incest, rape, and so on. In the pagan world, during the time that this was written, sexual immorality was rampant. And the letter to the Thessalonians was written, you'll remember, from Corinth. Paul, who wrote it, was in Corinth when he wrote to the Thessalonians. And Corinth had a reputation for sexual immorality. 
And friends, our society is fast moving in the direction of Corinth. Just two weeks ago, the New York Times featured a story on how pornography is affecting teenagers' views of sex. It said Drew was eight years old when he was flipping through TV channels at home and he landed on Girls Gone Wild. A few years later, he came across HBO's late-night softcore pornography. Then in ninth grade, he found online porn sites on his phone. From porn, he learned that guys need to be buff and dominant. But around 10th grade, he, this began bothering Drew. He wondered <clears throat> about how porn had influenced how he thought about girls at school. And it goes on to describe how he began to think about girls at school. Drew was a junior when the New York Times reporter met him in late 2016. And next to Drew was a friend who was 15, a good student who was pretty perplexed about how porn translated into real life. He told the reporter over several conversations that it wasn't just porn, but rough images on Snapchat, Facebook, and other social media that confused him. Drew mentioned the pain room in Fifty Shades of Grey that had a caption by a girl, this is awesome. The article went on to talk about the boys' concern that they won't be able to be like the porn guys. And then about the expectations the unreal world of pornography has set for girls too. What they're to look like and what they're to do. I'll say more about that in a bit. Friends, we live in a worldly, sexualized culture. Which through the images and stories promoted on the internet and cable and billboards and magazines. Have the real potential to shape our minds and warp our views of ourselves and others. It's no wonder that these teen boys are confused and young girls have such issues with body image. And so they take extremes to conform to what they think they're supposed to be. And older women who clearly want to remain teens don't help. But instead reinforce to the girls what's supposedly important. We're commanded in verse 3 to avoid. It says avoid all forms of sexual sin. The word that's used, that's translated avoid, shows how seriously this, how serious this is. It means literally to keep away from. So if we're going to be obedient to the Lord in this matter, we need to ask ourselves what we're doing to keep away from the sexual immorality that is foisted on us in our culture. In order to do that, we need to get over our faux aversion to a false understanding of legalism. Now, friends, we rightly decry legalism, the idea that you're holy because you keep certain rules. That's a, that's a false notion, and we rightly decry that. Or the idea of legalism that you get to heaven by virtue of what you do. But while it's true you're not holy because of rules, hear this, you can't be holy without them. Each of us must set up standards to avoid sexual immorality, keeping away from impure actions. That means things like being selective about what you watch. I'm going to read from a book called Twelve Myths That Americans Believe by Erwin Lutzer. He has a chapter in there about sensuality and sexuality of our culture being harmless. That's a myth, he says, and he's right. He says, movies and television are probably the most powerful and effective means of swaying public opinion ever discovered. 
Millions are persuaded to buy this automobile or that deodorant or vote for that political candidate because of a television ad. Are we so naive as to believe that children, young people, and adults are not being influenced by a constant diet of foul language, outrageous violence, moral perversity? Just when every vestige of decency has been desecrated, we're constantly bombarded with new levels of obscenity. One senator took to the Senate floor a few years ago and said this, The television audience is like that man who would become immune to the effects of arsenic or snake venom by gradually and continuously ingesting those poisons over a long period of time. With each dose of vulgarity, profanity, pornography, promiscuity, assault, murder, and other violence, we become less and less uncomfortable with those crimes and vices until at last our consciences lose the ability to object to them in others or even in our own behavior. I remember the pain that I would feel when many years ago as a youth leader, when I was engaged in youth ministry at our parent church, and I would hear young people from Christian homes talk freely about the movies that they would go and see, very often the R-rated movies that they would go and see. Now listen, friends, legalists not only think they're holy because they keep the rules, but usually they make the rules for other people. I cannot, nor do I desire to control anybody, but I would be remiss as a shepherd of this flock if I did not warn you to be very careful about the choices you make. Brethren, if a worldly movie board determines that something is restricted, (laughs) given their standards, how well is this likely to stand up to God's standards of holiness? Lutzer goes on to say, a generation ago, we heard sermons against attending movies. Now, again, I'm not making that rule. We don't have that rule. I'm not making it. But I grew up with that. A generation ago, we we would hear that a lot. And the arguments were participating in that entertainment helps fund Hollywood. And what was shown was not biblical morality, but perversions from the world. And Christians who were committed simply had no time for that kind of worldliness. But the mood has changed. Members of the current generation claim to be better educated than their forefathers, more sophisticated, more liberated. They understand the theater is actually neutral and can be used for either good or evil. It's actually true. And so this generation has begun to select the movies that we'll see. All right. But he goes on to say it's difficult to draw the line. And so Christians have begun to attend movies that are more risque. And so nudity, violence and profanity are tolerated. Because of the explosive power of sexuality, that invisible line has been pushed further and further down the path of sensuality. Young people particularly were bound to find ways to see sexually provocative movies. And once their appetite was whetted, it became difficult to stop. And now with the explosion of the availability of these kinds of materials through cable television and the Internet, everything is up for grabs. Christians who would not have been seen within 100 yards of a theater can now watch R-rated movies in the privacy of their own living rooms. The cable control box lures viewers to sensual pleasures and amoral living. It's true, isn't it? And that was all written, what I just read to you, really before the explosion of all the various means that are now at our disposal. Porn magazines are going out of business because it can now be just viewed for free in cyberspace. 
So I ask you, what standards do you have to avoid, to keep away from? The Bible says to do that. I told you the story years ago about spending the night, one night, no kidding, in an apartment that was located within a funeral home. The funeral home owner owned three funeral homes, and in each one of them he had a studio apartment. And he had somebody who lived in that apartment because it had been broke, his funeral homes had been broken into, and he wanted somebody there to guard what was going on, and so some lucky person could live there cheap. The funeral home was owned by a friend of mine. And one time the guy who lived there was going to be away, and the owner, his dad, didn't want the place to be empty, and so He told his son, you need to stay there, and his son invited me. And in fact, Rich Carrico can verify this because he was there with me too. And we spent the night in this funeral home. But here's what struck me when I walked into that studio apartment in that funeral home to spend that night, which, by the way, I didn't sleep. You wouldn't either in a funeral home. (laughs) But when I walked in, there was a television. But on top of the television was a little placard which was a a line from Psalm 101 and verse 3. It says this, I will set no evil thing before my eyes. The guy who lived there was a seminary student. And he made it a point to remind himself every time he looked at the TV, I will set no evil thing before my eyes. Notice he owned a TV. But he was bound to make wise choices with that. And so I ask, what do you watch and on what standard do you make those choices? What do you read? Pornography has ensnared hundreds of thousands of people. Ensnared, caught in a trap. I have zero doubt, no doubt at all, that there are men and perhaps women in this room who are ensnared in pornography. You know it's wrong. You hate it. You're afraid to come forward. Dear friend, for your sake, for your family's sake, for Christ's sake, contact me about that. We can help you with that. The explosion of sensuality in our culture has had and continues to have devastating consequences. Some of you will remember the infamous killer and rapist Ted Bundy. He was eventually executed for his crimes. But his testimony, after he professed Christ, came to Christ while he was in prison, his testimony was it all began as a boy with pornography. And he made an impassioned plea to parents and Christians to stop swimming in the swamp of sensuality. He said it starts small, seemingly harmless, but is a snare that will entrap you and those around you. Excuse me. Now, because of God's common grace, I'm thankful that The vast majority of those who consume pornography don't become serial killers. But make no mistake, there are consequences. It is impossible to read or watch sexually explicit material and not have your sensibilities altered. What was once taboo now becomes acceptable. What we wouldn't have tolerated in our living rooms is now okay. And all of that, despite what the Bible says, let me remind you of what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 4, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity 
with a continual lust for more. The next chapter of Ephesians says this, Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Why? It goes on to say, because for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. Many other effects of the culture of sensuality on both genders. For women, they become objects rather than cherished image bearers. And further, because our wives and daughters are constantly told that beauty requires collagen injections, silicone implants, color, clothes, styles, ad infinitum, and ad nauseum, then they all feel like they must keep up. But God says this about true beauty. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Instead, it should be that of your inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, if you wonder what that looks like, um, she's going to kill me for saying this, but she's sitting on the front row. And I mean that sincerely. Beautiful inside and out. And we have women in our church who strive to be that. Beautiful inside and out. Without succumbing to the world's standards of sensuality. Isn't it instructive that the number one concern reported by teenage girls is how they look? It's not just consequences for the ladies. Many men have been so inundated and they've drunk so deeply from this moral swamp that their view of beauty has become tainted. The airbrushed airbrushed images constantly run through their minds such that inner beauty does not satisfy. As I said earlier, I don't claim the authority to tell anyone what to do with personal decisions other than outright sin, of course. But I can say this without fear of contradiction. And as I do, I hope I say this in the context of friendship and pastoral care. Friends, we care way too much about how we look. We spend way too much time, too much money, and too much energy trying to attain the look. And when we do that, we take resources that should be poured into more important matters and we put them into that which is ultimately meaningless, empty, vain. It's called vanity for a reason. I urge you to consider how the effects of our sensual sensual culture have affected you. What do we do to avoid it? Well, it all starts with our desires, which issue forth in thoughts and then in actions. Verse 4. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. That word lust is the word for desire, and our desires are the fountain from which everything else flows. So what do we do? Here are three general recommendations for what to remember in order to engage in this very important fight. One. Remember this, friends, we are different from the world. As a Christian, as God's holy people, we are different from the world. 
You don't have the world tell you what's acceptable. God tells us what's acceptable. And we compare what the world says to that. We're different from the world. Secondly, we're at war with the world. And by that, I don't mean the people. I don't mean unbelieving people. I mean the world system, the cosmos, as the New Testament calls it. That is opposed to God and sets up a different standard than that which God sets up. We're at war with that in our souls, and it's at war for our souls. And thirdly, remember this, we are watched by the world. If the church is not different, the church is not distinct. As Jesus said, if the salt has lost its saltiness, how's it going to preserve? How's it going to be different? How are we going to be the light that shines on the hill? So the Bible says this, whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And above all, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We're going to continue this next week. We're going to bow and pray. As we do, friends, the good news is this. That if you know Jesus, you have the Spirit of God. And you can please God. And you can overcome these habits. But it's not something you can do passively. It's something you actively engage in. It's something you do by remembering things like I said there. It's something you do by setting up roadblocks, avoiding those kinds of temptations. But God the Holy Spirit will help you with that. You can overcome this. If you need help from us, we're here to help you. Contact me this week. If you don't know Jesus, you don't stand a chance. But you can know Jesus. You can have a relationship with him. You can have God the Holy Spirit. And you can do that as we pray by acknowledging that you have offended God by failing to live to his standards. You realize you're a sinner. That's what that means. You recognize That God the Son came and died for your sin. And you repent. Lord, I don't want to go the way that I'm going. I want to go your way. I give you my life. I ask you to save me, to rescue me. He'll do that. So let's bow together. Our Father, it's a convicting time for us because we still struggle with sin even though we're yours. Father, we live in a time that is unprecedented. It's unprecedented in the history of your world. There has never been a time in which access to so much perversity, so much sensuality, so much that is contrary to what you have made and the reason for which you have made our bodies and and sex. But all of this is contrary to that, and yet it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Lord, the temptation is no match for the Creator. And for God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells your people. And in any age, no matter where we are, we can stand for truth. And you have promised to enable us to do that. And so, Lord, help us not to despair. Help us to rejoice that we belong to you. And you give us joys in you that far surpass anything that the world can offer. And is the major cause of turning away from the world because we have something better, someone better. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. 
And anyone in this room who does not have a relationship with you does not stand a chance against the onslaught of the world. So, Lord, I ask you to call them out of the world into yourself in this sacred moment. Oh, Holy Spirit, I ask you to move upon their hearts, cause them to see their own sin and their need of the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Make them your child in this moment. Give them your Holy Spirit so they can begin to fight this fight as well. Lord, we want to please you with our lives out of gratitude for all that you've done for us. Help us to do that. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.